Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. We've been walking through a study on the book of Job, asking, where is God in my suffering? And this week, in our fifth episode, we're looking at Elihu, the mysterious character that enters the scene, offers a rebuttal, and then disappears. As a sufferer, anyone who disagrees with us is difficult to listen to. But this episode, I want to make the case that the journey of Job requires that we intentionally listen, even to the words of one we might not agree with, in order to prepare us for an encounter with God. So if you're ready to dive deep into the complex task of holding your convictions while still staying open to the speech of a rebuttal, this episode is for you. This episode is our sixth in the study of Job, where we've been asking, where is God in my suffering? This week, we've arrived at the notorious intrusion of Elihu, the mysterious figure who jumps into a conversation that seems stalled, pours forth five whole chapters of words, and then just disappears. Should be fun. Yet what I'm curious about as we approach this episode is why it seems like it's become so hard to listen to those who disagree with us. If I were to ask you, would you be open to hearing someone out who has a different opinion than yours? My guess is you'd probably say, sure, I'm a sane, rational person, and as long as they're a sane, rational person, I'm sure we could talk. Everybody likes to think that they're capable of listening, of hearing someone out who disagrees with them. But here's inevitably what happens instead. Conflict never takes place in a vacuum. When we, like Job, have suffered, and it's taken courage for us to speak our lament, and maybe we've even found a few good friends who have listened to our appeal. There, in the very pit of our grief, inevitably someone will butt in with an intrusive voice speaking their contrary opinions about our suffering. They ask lots of questions. Perhaps they even press painfully on the points we're trying to avoid. They disagree with us, perhaps forcibly. And I tell you, it doesn't matter if it's face-to-face, a text, or even just a post on your wall or even theirs. Whenever that critical voice appears, we snap, and it makes it impossible for us to hear anything that they're saying. Instead of talking, we become angry. We start shouting. Someone suggests we should cancel that person for saying that disagreeable thing. And before we know it, we begin to drift into the inevitable us-against-them thinking. And then we surround ourselves only with those who will serve as an echo chamber of our own thoughts. Recently, in July of 2020, the month I'm recording this episode, there is an open letter written by authors, intellectuals, and artists for Harper Publishing magazine. It included well-known intellectuals across a wide range of political views, including Margaret Atwood, the author of The Handmaid's Tales, J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter books, Malcolm Gladwell, the article writer for The New Yorker and host of Revisionist History, and even Noam Chomsky, the philosopher and champion of libertarian principles. As if that wasn't enough, there was also a speechwriter for George W. Bush, a transgender activist, a jazz musician, and a well-known ballet choreographer. And it totaled 152 signatures of a very impressive lineup. The letter, in just 552 words, had a simple point. The point was this. In divisive times, there is a growing concern that, quote, 
political ideologies and moral commitments of all kind tend to weaken our norms of open debate and toleration of differences in favor of ideological conformity, end quote. So essentially, the letter was written pleading that there would continue to be a space for open debate and a difference of opinion. Now let me ask you, what would you guess happened in response to this open letter? The backlash was immediate and severe. Twitter exploded with the volcanic rage and shame that only Twitter can possess. Many decried its desensitivity to the current Black Lives Matter movement. Others were horrified at some of the conservative names on the list they said should have been censored and never allowed to sign. Some who signed the letter even attempted to retract their name as a signatory when they saw the others who had signed the letter with them. Yet the most wrath was heaped on J.K. Rowling, who, though being known for being vocally liberal on Twitter, recently expressed views many deemed to be transphobic and has resulted in calls to cancel Rowling even removing her name from the Harry Potter books. I'm not surprised by the response, yet I find it highly ironic. The very coalition that gathered together to call for a spirit of openness to differences of opinion is resoundingly attacked for having spoken up at all. One of the signatories on the letter is a moral psychologist by the name of Jonathan Haidt. He wrote a book in 2018 along with the sociologist Greg Lukanoff called The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Haight was amazed by what he perceived to be a shift taking place on college campuses. Students who had been raised in overprotective states by anxious parents were now demanding trigger warnings and safe spaces, and Haight believed this was doing far more harm than good. He and Lukanoff observed three great untruths that they said were defining the way these college students were thinking. So great untruth number one was what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Students were going to great lengths to avoid even the slightest challenge to their system of belief. Then there was great untruth number two, always trust your feelings. For college students, if someone said something that made you feel uncomfortable, then your feelings should always immediately direct your response. Finally, they observe great untruth number three. Life is a battle between good and bad people. I found this one particularly interesting. For as much as our culture has promoted messages of diversity and tolerance, Haight and Lukanoff note study after study that find young adults were increasingly seeing the world less and less in gray and more and more in black and white. Life is us versus them. We are good. They are bad. And so our purpose is derived from the battle taking place to make sure we defeat them. If you bring these three great untruths together, what it meant is that students were getting set up to assume the worst about anyone who disagreed with them, because their feelings should always be right. Challenge always makes you weaker, and it is always us who are good versus them who are bad. Hate and Lucana fear that such a culture will actually stunt growth for these students rather than promoting it. Here's a quote from their book. A culture that allows the concept of safety to creep so far that it equates emotional discomfort with physical danger is a culture that encourages people to systemically protect one another from the very experiences embedded in daily life they need to become stronger and healthier. End quote. 
So what does all this have to do with suffering, with Job's suffering, with our suffering? Well, suffering has this way of compounding our grief. We've seen this in the dialogue with the friends. At one point in Job chapter 12, Job is going to push back resentfully against the aggressive postures and the harm that these friends' speeches have caused to him. This is Job 12, 2 to 5. No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. Job points out that it's easy for someone who's sitting in a secure place to have contempt in their speech for those whose feet are slipping. When we're suffering, this poor counsel of the friends is going to hurt even more than if Job were well. It's like the book of Job reveals this age-old grief that those who suffer are often betrayed by well-meaning friends who use their tradition, analysis, and theology to wound rather than comfort. Yet, the dilemma of such real betrayals is that we begin to grow intolerant of all speech that would oppose us. This spreads beyond our suffering. Suddenly, we find ourselves in conversations about politics, sports, or the weather, and a person disagrees, and we now are lashing out. Slowly, over time, we grow more and more insulated and insular, listening only to the voices that comfort us, only to the voices that agree with us. My fear is that our cultural moment is increasingly telling us anyone who disagrees with us is not only not our friend, but that they are actually our enemy and may cause us true harm simply in their disagreement. Here, in the book of Job, we find an unexpected twist. After the words of Job have run out, instead of the long-hoped-for appearance of God, someone else will come onto the scene, a young man named Elihu. Now, I don't think Elihu is an accident in the text. Instead, it's almost as if the Bible is asking us, do you have the strength to continue to listen? Even in your suffering, can you hear one more critique? Are you able to hear out one more voice that might disagree with your perspective on God and your suffering? If you're reading the book of Job, it almost feels like Elihu comes out of nowhere. He hasn't been mentioned this far in the story. He won't be mentioned again. He shows up, he speaks, and then he's gone. So what's going on with this Elihu speech? There really have been two options that many commentators have proposed. The first is this. Elihu is the answer to Job's suffering. That's option number one. Job has been questioning, even assaulting God in his case. The friends' responses have been flawed because of their retributive system. And so the author of Job wanted to make sure we heard the right perspective of one who could answer Job correctly. If you're reading Job casually, you might be tempted to agree with this approach. Elihu seems to have a lot of nice moments where he tends to be more grounded, compassionate, and engaged to Job than the friends. He even closes his speech in chapters 36 to 37 with this ringing endorsement of God's creation offered as a comfort to any who suffer. So this first approach will often proclaim, look, finally, someone's here who's got the right answer. 
It's not about retribution. It's about Job's need to return to praising God. Job was simply missing someone who could encourage him to get back into this method of praise, to get back to the God who comforts him through creation. While this approach to Elihu sounds nice, I believe it unfortunately skirts some of the deeper issues going on in Elihu's speech when you slow down and read it carefully, which we're about to do. For instance, Elihu will begin with all of these nice-sounding invitations for Job to speak so that he can listen. Yet we find out rather quickly that Elihu has made up his mind from the start about Job, that Job is, in fact, wrong. We'll look more closely at that in just a minute. One also begins to wonder, the more you read Elihu's words, if there isn't this sense of self-righteousness about him. I mean, Elihu has stepped in after these four men have debated unimaginable suffering for almost 30 chapters, and yet he believes that he is the only one who has the right word about God. If you read that final section of praise more closely, Elihu seems somewhat detached from Job's plight. It's like he's monologuing his praise at Job rather than for Job, and that Elihu has set himself as the heroic worshiper that Job could never be. In this sense, it's almost as if Elihu's speech becomes a contrast, a foil to the pointedly engaged and intentionally dialogical conversation that is going to soon take place between God and Job when the whirlwind appears. So a second approach has suggested that perhaps Elihu is meant to be a later reader, who, unsatisfied with how Job ends, has come back to write themselves into the story. One theory even suggests that Job may have been written during the intense suffering of the exile, when all of Israel could connect to Job's despair, and maybe even were voicing Job's protest themselves against God. However, generations later, when a younger generation of Israelites had returned to Jerusalem, they were horrified at the speech of their ancestors found in the book of Job. So they decided to write themselves into the story as Elihu, protesting the wild speeches of Job and offering their own model of pious praise as a response. That's obviously only a theory, and to be honest, we'll probably never know either who wrote Job or how it was compiled together. However, what the theory points to is the sense that Elihu might not hold all of the answers. Rather, he has come late to the scene. He is probably sincere in what he's attempting to offer. And if we're brave enough, we will do our best to listen, even though we might not agree with everything we're about to hear. I've called this episode The Rebuttal, because none of us want to experience a rebuttal to our case of suffering. And to be clear, we don't have to agree with most or even all of what a rebuttal speaks. But one commentator will claim that when it comes to Elihu, the Bible is inviting us into what they call a deliberately generous curiosity of what he's about to say. I like that phrase, a deliberately generous curiosity. Rather than assume the worst, what if we were to attentively listen and even analyze what Elihu speaks without necessarily having to agree with him? Such a stance might actually help us build up our strength so that we can continue in dialogue with others who might disagree. Even when we thought the conversation was over, do we have the strength to listen one more time and see what there is to learn from the rebuttal of another? Well, in our deliberately generous curiosity, I want to note three points I find curious about Elihu's speech as we work through some of the text. 
First is going to be the anger of Elihu. This is from the introduction to Elihu found in Job 32, 1-5. I'll read it now. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Did you catch that? Four times we're told that Elihu burned with anger. It almost seems to jump off the page at you as you read it. Elihu is fuming. In fact, the Hebrew word for anger is the same word for nose, because anger is often associated with heavy breathing through the nose. We're told that when Elihu appears, he quite literally has his nose burning. He's worked up. He's been nearby, standing off to the side, listening to these three friends debate back and forth about Job's suffering, and he can't take it anymore. It's time for him to speak. My first instinct as I read Elihu's burning anger is to assume a negative association with it. Anger for Westerners is often negative. Yet as a reader of Job, I have to catch myself. We'll find out later that God too is said to burn with anger at the words the friends have spoken to Job. Now when we read that God burned with anger, we intuitively understand it to be a reflection that he is indignant on Job's behalf. It's actually a protective emotion, one that arises not from a lack of control, but instead as a necessary response to a perceived injustice in the world, in this case, the friends against Job. But what if rather than fearing and immediately attacking back when we were confronted by anger, we could instead seek to understand why it is that a person has become angry? An incredibly helpful thinker on the subject of human emotions is Martha Nussbaum, who after teaching at Harvard and Oxford now holds a joint chair in law and philosophy at the University of Chicago. She's an impressive thinker. And Nussbaum has spent her life contemplating the effects of emotion on human nature and the laws we use to govern our society. In one of her works, titled Upheavals of Thought, The Intelligence of Emotions, Nussbaum makes the case that we often perceive anger wrong. We assume, she says, that emotion is an upheaval, arising spontaneously from within us as a force we cannot control. But instead, she claims that our emotions are actually surprisingly intelligent, thus the intelligence of emotions. They actually align with what we already deeply believe, and only arise when we sense a genuine challenge to the way we see the world. So if you're tracking with Nussbaum, what she's arguing is that in order for someone to become angry, four conditions must be present. The first condition must be that some threat or damage has occurred to something or someone valued. The second condition is that that damage must not be trivial, but is in fact significant. The third condition is that whatever it was that was done was not done accidentally, but intentionally. And the fourth condition is that there therefore is someone to blame, some responsible agent that can or should be identified, stopped, and then corrected or punished. So, what Nussbaum is saying is that our anger is never accidental. Our anger is always reflecting a deeply held belief with four clear conditions 
that we must perceive to all be violated. If any of those conditions didn't exist, if in fact we found out that the damage was not that trivial, or that what was done was actually done accidentally, then a person's anger would simply slip away. So in the case of Elihu's anger, the point is that Elihu's anger is not simply reactionary or accidental. Instead, if Nussbaum is correct, it's the bodily expression he has to a deeply challenged belief presented by Job's speeches. Elihu will explain as much in chapter 32. In fact, if you follow his arguments, he'll give you three reasons he felt he had to speak. The first is this. Elihu argues that he feels that he has the same access to God that the friends in Job are misrepresenting in their anger. He'll say in verses 7 to 8, I said, Let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But is it not the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand? End of the verse. Elihu's angry, therefore, because those who should have represented wisdom, the elders of the community, failed to offer it. The second reason Elihu's going to give for his anger is that the conversation should have continued that has now lapsed into silence. He'll say in chapter 32, verse 15, They were dismayed. They answered no more. They have not a word to speak to you, Job. The friends simply gave in when they should have continued contending with Job for deeper understanding. They simply gave up and gave in to the relentless tenacity of Job's resistance. Finally, Elihu will say he's angry because the friends allowed their emotions and their system to get the better of them. Elihu instead believes he can be a fair and impartial judge to Job in a way the friends previously had not been. He'll say in chapter 32, verse 21, I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery towards any person. Job this whole time has been looking, even calling for an arbiter, and Elihu believes he now could be the man to handle such a case. In this first note of deliberately generous curiosity, we actually find that Elihu's anger, which we would assume to be negative, might positively reveal wrongs that need to be addressed. I think it's helpful to note that in our suffering, we often can cause damage, even unknowingly, to other people's sincerely held beliefs. Rather than minimize their anger, it could be helpful here to attempt to understand what Nussbaum calls the intelligence of their emotions. There is, in fact, a strange love in Elihu's intrusion, that's drawing out my compassion for him. Certainly, Elihu has a love for God. That's why he says he must speak, he must intrude. But there's also this note of love for Job himself that suggests Elihu, even imperfectly, is trying to correct what he perceives to be the failures of the friends who simply dropped their case. Elihu believes the conversation on suffering is not yet over. So in this first point, I would commend him. Sometimes, in a rebuttal, the anger is actually trying to correct perceived injustices. And perhaps, if we can listen, we can appreciate why the rebuttal feels the need to speak. However, we'll turn now to a second note on Elihu's speeches, attempting a deliberately generous curiosity. While we should strive to remain open to the Elihus who intrude into our lives, we would be wise to be wary 
of their offers to genuinely listen. As Elihu will continue his speech in chapter 33, multiple times he will invite Job to speak, and Elihu will attempt to demonstrate that he has in fact already been listening. Let me give you this long stretch of verses, verses 1 to 7 of chapter 33, that seem to almost make you think Elihu is ready to be on Job's side. Here's the text. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth, the tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can, Job. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am towards God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Notice the gestures of compassion here in Elihu's speech. Gestures that seem to invite Job to respond. That final verse literally ends by saying, Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Elihu is going to continue this wooing attempt to get Job to speak by claiming to have listened attentively to his case. The following three verses will actually reiterate some of Job's words. This is found in Job 33, 8-11. Elihu will say, Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure, without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. So notice that these are fairly accurate approximations of what Job has stated at several points over his speeches. Job has claimed to be pure. He's claimed that God now counts him as his enemy. Job has expressed his frustration, feeling like a prisoner, and despairing that God is watching over his every move. As a listener, you're almost drawn in at this point, wondering, as perhaps Job himself was, is Elihu actually sincere in what he's saying? Have we perhaps finally found the arbiter who will listen to and defend Job's case? Unfortunately, however, the following verse will reveal Elihu has simply been setting up his own case through his speech. This is verse 12 of chapter 33. Behold, Job, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? Oh, you can almost see Job roll his eyes in pain disgust as we hit this point of Elihu's speech. It's actually all been a setup for Elihu to simply speak his mind. The next three chapters will trot out Elihu's case. First, it's all about how God has actually spoken to Job and all sufferers, even though they claim his absence. This is Job 33, 14-18. Elihu says, For God speaks in one way, and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, when they slumber on their beds. Then he opens the ears of men, and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed, and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. While Elihu has given his case his own spin, underneath Elihu's rebuttal is yet again a retributive system. God has, he claims, sent visions to Job. Job must have missed them because they came to him as dreams in his sleep. 
God is trying to bring Job's attention to his pride because his suffering is being used by God as a means to get Job to repent. We've heard this kind of speech before, even if Elihu's giving it his own twist. He believes the problem for Job is that he needs to repent so that God can bless him again. In the next chapter, Elihu will go so far as to scoff at anyone like Job who can question the unfolding of God's perfect justice. He'll say to Job in 34.17, Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? This too sounds a lot like the case of the friends. God is once again removed. He is unquestionable. God's righteousness and power keep him distanced and separated from the petty suffering that Job claims questions his might. Yet Elihu will interestingly go even further than the friends in removing God from accountability for his actions. One of the strangest verses that Elihu will say comes in Job 34, 23-24. Elihu says this, For God has no need to consider a man further, that he should go before God in judgment. For God shatters the mighty without investigation and sets others in their place. Elihu's callous dismissal here sounds like a lawyer refusing to even examine the evidence of one who might question the judge overseeing the case. This is, of course, the very pained question Job has been asking of God. Does God care? Does he even investigate? Is he even involved in dispensing justice for those suffering on earth? Elihu, however, has dismissed Job's question as absurd with another system of a god detached in his punitive powers. By the end of chapter 34, Elihu is declaring confidently, this is from verse 35 to 36, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like a wicked man. Now I know what you must be thinking. I've been arguing so far in this episode for a willingness to be deliberately generous in our curiosity about Elihu. Yet he has now confirmed what any sufferer would fear. His rebuttal is another condemning voice, keeping on to the pile more confusion about God and more pointless questions about Job's suffering. I didn't say that this would be easy. Nor are the Elihus in our lives to be implicitly trusted. Upon closer examination, I believe Elihu's case is not sound. He has not offered anything new. His words reflect the same critiques and the same detached system that Job has spent almost 30 chapters arguing over and defending with the friends. Perhaps that is why, though, Elihu has repeatedly called for Job to answer him. He wants to egg Job on to get him to respond to maybe finally offer up more evidence about Job's guilt and complicity in his suffering. Yet Job will stay resolvedly silent in the face of Elihu's rebuttal. Job may offer Elihu the respect of listening, but he will not offer him the dignity of a response to an empty case. Perhaps this, too, is a model for us when our own Elihu's appear to offer rebuttals towards us. Like Job, we must summon the courage to listen, but like Job, we may not find in listening that they deserve the dignity of our response to their speech. This leads to my third and final note in an attempt to work out a deliberately generous curiosity about Elihu. In this final reflection, much like his anger, I want to see if I can understand why Elihu feels so confident in his rightness 
that he needs to speak. If I can, it will help me understand and have compassion on all Elihus, each intruder who so confidently asserts their own opinions in the midst of my suffering. But before listening to the end of Elihu's case, I want to once again summon Jonathan Haidt to the stand. In addition to The Coddling of the American Mind, the book mentioned earlier, Haidt had previously written another book on a similar phenomenon he was observing. This book was called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Haidt had noticed something strange. Everyone he knew at the time seemed to be politically liberal. And yet everyone who was liberal had this sense that a person would just have to be crazy to be conservative. I mean, come on, they would say. How could you not believe in racial equality, social welfare, the need for big government, and the uninhibited freedom of all identity and sexual expressions? For someone who was politically liberal, there was this certainty for hate that seemed to suggest that anyone with enough space and enough time would come to the same conclusion as their liberal beliefs. It was simply common sense. Yet when Haight was preparing his book, he found himself spending extended time in politically conservative parts of the country, and he was surprised to see that the same sort of confidence existed. Conservative people also thought that a person would have to be crazy to be a liberal. I mean, come on, they would say. How could you not believe in defending the freedom of religion, the welfare of unborn children, and the opportunity for businesses to flourish uninhibited by governmental restrictions? For someone who was politically conservative, there was this sense of certainty, like this was common sense. In fact, conservatives believed anyone who spent enough time to really reason this out and not be tainted by the liberal media or education systems would come to the same conclusion. They had to. It was just common sense. As Haight did more and more research, he started to discover that what he was observing was the very process of how all of us do our moral reasoning. Everyone believes that their beliefs are governed by facts. Yet the more hate prodded, the more he started to see that our reasoning actually begins on a deeply intuitive level. Hate observed that we feel things first, and then our minds will actually do the backtracking work to come up with reasons why we feel what we feel. In this way, we thought our reasoning was governing our beliefs, but in fact, it's our feelings that are driving us, and our reasoning only comes second with much effort to solidify what's already there. Haight would reference a study done repeatedly by psychologists over the past few years that has had a consistent result. So in this study, you bring a person to be questioned on five controversial political topics, things like terrorism, racial inequality, government size, and wealth redistribution. You then ask the person to rate how confident they are in their beliefs, and then rate their view of someone who holds a differing belief to them. The person is then given a short, multiple-choice test on how much they actually know about details regarding the belief they hold. Over and over again, the study finds that the more a person is confident in what they believe and sees themselves as superior to other people's beliefs, the lower they will actually score on knowledgeable information about the belief they hold. Conversely, the study finds that the more a person is humble and tentative around their belief, the more likely a person is to be well-informed about the beliefs they hold. Hate will call this phenomenon the righteous mind conundrum. The more confident we get about what we believe, the less we often know. Our brain has simply done all the work to go back and give us reasons for what we felt to be right all along, 
rather than actually doing the hard investigative work of humility to lay out all the evidence and come to a less certain conclusion. As I read the end of Elihu's speech in Job 36 to 37, I don't hear the noble heroic worshiper that Elihu wants to present himself as being. Instead, I hear the words of someone struggling with the righteous mind conundrum. Elihu will demonstrate this insufferable confidence towards the end of his speech. He says in Job 36, 2-4, Bear with me a little, and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar, and ascribe righteousness to my Maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Surely this verse should give it all away. Elihu thinks he's perfect in knowledge. He's going to go on in his praise to simultaneously cast judgment upon Job's suffering. Yet he'll end with unshakable confidence in a God who he claims is impossible to find. This is Job 37, 22-24. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Therefore men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Surely, for the loftiness of Elihu's claims, he cannot know all that he thinks he knows about God and Job's situation. Elihu's clearly struggling with the righteous mind conundrum. He truly believes his assessment of Job is right. He offers it to him with superior confidence, yet in all truth, he's probably lacking more information than he even knows. Yet once more, I am drawn with compassion to Elihu. Just as I want to be the kind of person who's drawn with compassion to the fully convinced liberal and the fully convinced conservative, Elihu passionately thinks he's gotten it all right, when in fact his rebuttal is full of the blustery bravado that makes the friend's words just as empty. Elihu's righteous mind has corrupted the potential gift he could have given to Job by carefully examining his case perhaps even becoming the advocate Job had hoped would be by his side when God appears. Such is often the case when a rebuttal arises to our suffering. But as we heal and grow, I want to do the difficult work to listen, even to someone who's struggling with the righteous mind. What are we to make of the rebuttals that intrude on our suffering? I'll be honest, it's difficult to leave space at the table for Elihu. He disappoints in his own self-appointed superiority. He deceives in his false promises to listen and let Job speak. He flusters us with his burning anger. Yet this episode uncomfortably exists because the Bible still allows Elihu to speak. If there will always be Job's in the world who need to hear Job's bewildered cry of lament, then we must also prepare that there will always be Elihu's in the world. They will post to your newsfeed, share divergent political viewpoints, and will perhaps even raise in you the agitated sense of fear that what they believe threatens something you hold incredibly dear. This is not to say Elihu is right or that Elihu should not be contested. Job often models the courageous resistance that pushes back against the false offers of insincere belief. But to silence Elihu altogether to deny him the opportunity to speak, it begins to cultivate in us our own righteous minds that will struggle to hear anyone who diverges from what we already believe to be true.
Therefore, as we've been going along each episode, we've offered a free companion study that can be found on our website, burningwordpodcast.com. Each episode has also had an exercise found in the study that can be used to personally reflect on and explore your own journey of suffering. So this week, I want to invite you into the hard task of considering carefully the rebuttal against your suffering. I personally do not look forward to the Elihus who will attempt to speak into my life, but I would be far more foolish not to prepare for them. If we are on a journey with Job, seeking to encounter God, the truth is we'd be wiser to listen to the case of a rebuttal now, before God himself shows up to speak. Otherwise, we too might find ourselves struggling with the same righteous mind syndrome that plagues Elihu and the friends. So I encourage you to lean in and carefully examine the works of rebuttal that might be spoken to your suffering. Hear out their case. Cling with courage to humility, just as surely as you continue to cling to the core conviction of your case. For ultimately, it is not Elihu that Job will need to respond to, but God himself when he appears. Yet perhaps, because of the rebuttal of Elihu, all of us will be better prepared to encounter the whirlwind when it comes. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Until next time, grace and peace.